0: Thanks for checking out this message from Radiant Life Church. Grab your Bible a pad of paper and a pen. Let's dive in. Well, good morning, church family. And it's good to see you all here. And welcome those watching online, of course, part of our family here at Radiant Life. If you're new, my name's Ryan. I'm our lead pastor here. And we all together get to kick off our summer teaching series titled The Book of Mark. And if you're, yeah, I hope you get excited, because I'm excited about this. I'm always, I get excited about anything in the Word of God. That's all I have to say. All right? Well, if you turn to your Bible about two-thirds of the way in, you get what's known as the New Testament. Immediately, you get four guys right off the bat in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are known as the four gospel writers. They write about the life of our Savior and our Lord Jesus And so you want to turn there, find the guy by the name of Mark, and that's where we're going to be this morning. I'm so excited to get here because this is an action, busy, fast-paced book. If Hollywood was going to make a movie, they would use the book of Mark to make that movie on the life of Jesus, because it is a boom, 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 boom book. Boom, boom book. (laughs) I kind of like that. All right. It is hard hitting fast pace. Before we jump in, I wanna I wanna just give us a few highlights of the book. Since all summer long we're gonna be in this book together, we're gonna do a chapter a week. Um, a couple weeks we gotta combo two chapters to get us to September, okay? But there's sixteen chapters in the book of Mark, and I wanna give us just a foundation this morning to get us there. Because I'm supposed to cover chapter one with you this morning. There are 45 verses in chapter one. I really only want to focus on the first verse and then a couple afterwards, which means what do we do with the rest of Mark chapter one? That's for you to study all week long. Mark one is packed with stuff. In fact, we're not even gonna get to Jesus gets baptized. We don't even get to the fact as soon as he's done baptizing, the Spirit of God drives Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted. In fact, we don't even get to Jesus' first calling of his disciples, which is in Mark 1. By the way, there's three principles in Mark 1. You'll see it where Jesus calls his disciples. His very first disciples he calls, he says this, Follow me. That's the first call of any true discipleship. As one who follows after Jesus, we do the things of Jesus. And then he says, follow me. And he says this, I will make you. Because with Jesus, there's always a transformation that's happening. The disciples weren't there yet. But he tells them, as he calls them, I will make you. I'm going to do a work in your life that there's a transforming work of Christ in our lives. And then he says, I will make you fishers of men. You will be on mission with me now. Follow me, I'm going to transform you, and you're going to be on mission for me. That's a freebie. I I didn't even preach that. There you go. Write that, Hurry, hurry up. It's in like Mark 1 something when he calls his first disciples. Then after that, he goes on two different preaching circuits that we don't even have time to cover, but you will when you study all week. Sound good? All right, so let me get us into some of the highlights of the overall book of Mark. So Mark is written by a guy by the name of John Mark. John Mark writes the gospel, his letter, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this letter that we have, circa AD, the mid fifties, circa meaning around AD, mid fifties, somewhere in the fifties, the mid fifties. Some of the earliest biblical scholars will date it early 50s. Some will date it late 50s. So I said, let's just split the middle. We're going to call it mid-50s right there, right? Somewhere around the mid-50s. What's interesting about Mark is Mark is the first of the four Gospels written. Remember, you have Matthew, you have Mark, you have Luke and John. Mark is the first of the four to be written. And Mark has a target audience, Mark's audience is he's writing to the Romans. He's writing to the who, friends? Keep it in mind, because it's going to carry significant weight how Mark opens up the gospel. He's writing to the Romans. Matthew, here's a quiz, or yeah, I won't quiz you, I'll just tell you. Matthew's gospel, who does Matthew write it? His audience are the Jews, Right? He's trying to prove to the Jews that he is the Messiah, that Jesus is Jewish, but he is the Messiah, all the Jews we've been waiting for. Mark has an audience. I'm writing to the Romans over and over there. And then you have Matthew, Mark, you have Luke. Luke writes to Theophilus, which is just Greek believer, and uh, that's who he writes to. And then John has a very particular audience as well. They each have an audience that they're geared towards. Mark is geared towards the Romans. And here's what's fascinating about the book of Mark. It's known as a busy book. That's what I said from the get-go, right? It's hard-hitting. It's fast-paced. It is so busy. Over 1,300 times, Mark uses the word and. And this, and that, and this, and that. And Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he went off and did that. 1,300 times over the word and. It's used to move the life of Jesus very quickly. Here's a key word that as we study together, you're probably going to pick up on. is this word Immediately. Mark uses it over 40 times in his letter. It's only 16 chapters. Over 40 times, immediately, immediately. Are we starting to get a feel for how quick Mark's gospel is? It moves. And here's one of the reasons why it moves so quickly. Because John Mark, his emphasis is on the deeds of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. He's more focused on writing to the Romans about the actions of this Jesus rather than the speech or the discourse of Jesus. For instance, Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew will record the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous teachings of Jesus. Mark? Nope. Too many words. I want to get to what Jesus is doing. (laughs) And so that's the difference. Here's a cool thing John Mark was not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't part of the original 12 disciples. John Mark picks up most of his material from a guy by the name of Peter, one of the 12 disciples. Peter is the main source for John Mark's gospel. It's also referred to as the gospel according to Peter, if you didn't know that, okay? Here's a cool, fun little fact too. Are we setting good ground though so far? Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Here's just a, this is just a cool nugget. That in Acts 12.12, 12, it tells us that the early church met at the home of John Mark's mother. So it's really rich. John has this, or John Mark has this rich history with the early church. And then lastly, here's my last golden nugget before we jump in, that the gospel, the book of Mark, is the most translated book of all scripture. You sit back and go, well, why? Number one, it's only 16 chapters. And here's another thing. What happens is in the book of Mark, he's writing to the Romans. You don't have to have all that Jewish theological understanding background, cultural background as much in the book of Mark than you do like Matthew. And this book is written in Greek. The New Testament's written in Greek. It's written in what? Here's what's fascinating about John Mark's book. Mark has more Latin in Aramaic phrases than any of the other gospels he does. And so translators, when they want to get a book into a language that they know, this is the very first book they go to translate of all the scripture, Mark. Here's what's also fascinating about what John Mark does in his gospel. He goes after these three questions. He wants to answer to his audience. Remember his audience is what? the. Romans, he's getting to them. He wants them to know, who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? And what does it mean to follow after Jesus? And he's gonna answer those three questions all throughout his letter. The gospel, the book, according to Mark. And here's what's fascinating. You and I are gonna read this together all summer long. And what John Mark does is he puts in front of you the person Jesus He's always putting the reader to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus until it's impossible that you cannot be neutral and read the gospel of Mark. He is going to pin you and make you respond to who this Jesus is. He's gonna get you to a point where you have to respond to what this Jesus has done. He's gonna get you to a point that you have to decide do I want to follow this Jesus or not? And you're gonna have to respond to the reality of the cross, of what Christ Jesus did. His gospel is always pointing you to who? Jesus. Oh, I'm ready to go there. Because you and I know this. If you're a Christian in this room today, or watching online, if you're a follower of Jesus, life Without Jesus is a life that's empty and meaningless. And the book of Mark, he sits there and pinpoints, Jesus, you cannot but help respond one way or another to this Jesus. And here we go together in the book of Mark. Now, again, I love the first one verse of Mark. But we're going to do the first eight together. So if you want to turn your Bible or turn your tablet or your phone, we're going to be in Mark 1, 1 through 8. And I've titled the message, These 12 Words. These 12 words are really focusing on just verse 1, because that's what I want us to anchor into this morning. Here's what's fascinating about Mark, as you turn there. Uh, Mark does not begin with a birth narrative of Jesus. Matthew and Luke begin with the birth narrative of Jesus. It's not that Mark isn't interested in the birth of Jesus. Excuse me. He's just trying to get his audience, the reader, to get into the actions and deeds of Jesus. Remember, he wants you to know who is this Jesus, right? He wants to get you to know why did this Jesus come? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? So there's no birth narrative. He's just gonna jump in with a declarative statement. About the identity of who this Jesus is. And I know this in verse 1. There's 12 words. And these 12 words could not be more radical. It slices down humanity. These 12 words understand there are two classes of people. And I know our culture today doesn't like putting people in boxes. But too bad. Because these verse 12 verses do. Here are these two boxes that everyone falls into. You either believe or you don't believe. Those are the two boxes. And Mark is going to come swinging out of the gate and make you pinpoint and respond to this statement. These 12 words, he's going to make you respond. You're either going to believe about this Jesus and it's going to change and transform the way you think about yourself, the way you think about the world and humanity, the way you think about purpose and calling and why you were ever created to begin with. Or it's gonna put you in the don't believe category and you think this Jesus is ridiculous and perhaps delusional. And if you're in that camp, can I say welcome to Radiant Life? I hope that by our, the way we worship, the way the teaching comes across, the spirit of God is working on you already. And that as, second, as, uh, as Corinthians 4, four 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, that the veil would be lifted off your eyes, the scales would fall, that you would see and know and believe in who he is. Keep coming. Keep questioning. You've got to, uh, you have to wrestle with life. You have to wrestle with this idea of how did this all get here in the first place? You have to wrestle with the meaning of life. So if you are in Mark 1, you've got it open. Let me hear you say word. Word. We get in the word to the word. Gets Gets into us. Let's go. Mark 1 starts this way. The beginning. Stop. We're only two words in. Mark's making a statement. You know anywhere else in scripture that may open up a book this way? There's two parts. But I want to bring you back to the beginning. <laughs> Genesis 1-1 states, in the beginning. What in the world is Mark doing? Why would you ever start off your letter, the beginning? Why would you do that? This is known as a remez. Let me hear you say remez. A remez means to hint, to hint back to. Mark is writing here to the inspiration of Holy Spirit, the beginning. Because if it brings us back to Genesis 1.1 1, 1, in the beginning, what happens in Genesis 1? Seismic changes begin to uh, happen. The creation of the world out of nothing. There's this new thing that's happening. And for Mark, he says, "Is that was a new thing that's happening, oh, I can't wait to tell you about a new happening that's going to happen in you. And it's going to come from the person of Jesus. There is a change that's about to begin that will have implications on your life. In the beginning. And Mark says, listen, it's not the world. It's the beginning of something else. And you're gonna have to respond to the beginning of this. And then he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word, gospel, in the Greek here is the word uh, evangelon, which we get the word evangelism from. So when we say go out and evangelize, I know it's a church term, evangelism. It means we are to bring the good news about Jesus to people. That's the gospel. Good news, joyful tidings of salvation. That's what it means. Now remember, who is John Mark's audience? One more time, it's the? Ah. Because the Romans have a gospel too. No wonder why John would use a term that they have. According to to theologians and historical writers. Theologian William Lane says this about the gospel of the Romans. He says this, among the Romans it meant joyful tidings and was associated with the cult of the emperor. When their Caesar took the throne, it was their gospel. The gospel was all about their emperor bringing Rome peace, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That was their salvation message, their gospel message. And Mark writes, hey, you all have a gospel of an emperor. I'm going to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the only gospel. Your emperor won't save you, but listen to this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can. It's not about the salvation of the Roman emperor, it's about the salvation that God is gonna step down into humanity and give us His Son. And His Son has a name, and His name is Jesus. And Mark is pinning something against His his audience, in their hearts. Are you going to go the way the world is going? Are you going to go the way the Son of God is going to go? you got to decide. It's one or the other. You can't have both. And he puts the two against one another. The gospel of your Roman emperor or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm going to tell you about the good news of who this Jesus is. Because he's about ready to change your life if you're willing to go there. This is about a new beginning. What the world has hungered for. This is what the world has needed. The person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the best news. This is the gospel. Get ready, Rome. Get ready, Christians over there. Get ready, Romans. Your world's going to be turned upside down. Aren't you excited? I'm pumped. I'm pumped. This Jesus will become the Son of God. With this statement alone, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there is immediate hope for us. There is hope for you and I that the Son of God has come, the Jesus, this Messiah, the one all the Old Testament prophets wrote about. That wonderful counselor, that prince of peace, the one that is carrying all the prophets, all the promises of the prophets. He's here. The perfect lamb that satisfied the wrath of God and purchased our forgiveness and imputed unto us his righteousness. He's here. It's the gospel, it's the good news of the Son of God, this Jesus. And God's ultimate answer from the beginning of these 12 words is not to give us a set of principles. It's not to give us wise philosophy to live by. It's not to give us a moral code to live on. But ultimately, his answer was to give us himself in the person of Jesus, the son of God. And I wanna pause for a moment and say this. I'm afraid these words, Jesus, Son of God, that these words are all too familiar now. That they've come so familiar that we've lost a sense of awe of Jesus. That we've lost a sense of thankfulness to Jesus. That we lost our worship to Jesus. And that we're just one step away from idolatry. Let me ask you a question. Have you lost your awe? Have you lost your awe? Because Mark comes swinging out of the gates. There's good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't you ever forget it. Have you lost your awe? Or do we just do the church thing, right? We just come in and hopefully God sees you. All right? God, did, did you see me come to church? I mean, that's, that's worth something, right? Like maybe a one less argument with my spouse this week. Did you see I did the good thing, right? But it's not coming from here. And you know why? Of course you come to a building like this. You know Why? Because you're in awe of your Savior. You're part of the body of the Christ, and the body of Christ is hurt when you're not here. That's why we come. To edify, to lift up one another. Have you lost your sense of awe? And then John Mark does something pretty cool. His whole book is awesome. He takes us from these 12 words that have Theological implications for the Romans and for us. And he brings us immediately to the shores of the Jordan River. And he's going to introduce us to the first time Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Also known as John the Baptizer. This John was not part of the Baptist denomination, okay? He's just known as John the Baptist because this is what he did. He baptized Jesus people. Right here is the f- awesome drone footage of the Jordan River. If you see, you see all the way up top, all the way up top is the Dead Sea. If you notice to the top left a little bit, you begin to see a mountain range. That is the, that is the mountains of the country Jordan there. The Dead Sea right there. And he entered, brings us to these plains and said, there's a guy Baptizing. In verse four, it reads this way. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean country, how many is that? That's, that's the whole, right? There's a lot of people. And he's not done. He says, oh, by the way, and all people of Jerusalem. How many is that? That's a, that's a ton of people coming to get baptized. Isn't that right? I mean, come on now. The other, two weeks ago, we did spontaneous baptism. We had what, 22, 23, 24? 22, 20, 24. 24. How awesome's that, right? Spontaneous, no, just move of God in their lives to say, that's what I got to do. I mean, the whole Judean countryside, all the people in Jerusalem, whoo! That's some, I wonder if he got tendonitis or something in his arms and fingers dunking so many people. I mean, there's a lot of people coming. And what was the baptism of? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's baptizing people who have decided to repent and turn their life back to God. And all these people are coming out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then what are they doing while they're getting baptized Oh, one more time, say it a little bit louder. I know it's hard to actually do this part too. They were what? They were? Okay, now turn to your neighbor and please confess. Some of you are like, is he serious right now? Nah. They turn their heart back to God. And as a result of that turning they're realizing the ugliness of their sin and they're confessing it. They're getting it off their heart. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to make us repent and come back to God for us to realize how bad sin is in our life and to confess it. We've lost the art of confession today in the church. We say, well, I just confess to God. You're right. You should. But please, it also says, if we want to be biblical, it says, confess your sins to one another. It's great to confess to a brother and sister in Christ and say, Hey, I need prayer here. Would you pray for me in this? Come on. We need each other, don't we? And there was a, there was, this was revival that's happening. I love what Bill William Barclay says in the New Daily Study Bible. He says this about this moment. Where Christ is allowed to come, the antiseptic of the Christian faith cleanses the moral poison of society and leaves it pure and clean. Does our culture need that today more than ever? Come on, I think God is calling the church, his church, to come back to that. Come back to this idea of what does it look like to actually live holy lives. Perfect? No. But pursuit of Jesus? Yes. There's a call that Jesus is there. There's a call to holiness in our lives. There's a call there. Here's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid for some of us we can sit back and sing Amazing Grace and yet be ungracious as a husband and as a mother. That we can preach the love of God yet live selfish, selfish, me-centered, unloving lives as we step over people in need. That we get to a place that we talk about the righteousness of Christ, that we're made right before God the Father, on our account and we're thankful and we go and preach that like I made right before God but at the same time we're looking at porn and sleeping with our boyfriend and girlfriend. At what point will we surrender to Jesus and die to self and sin and become alive in God? At what point? I mean, we'll get there in like five weeks but in Mark 7, look at what this says. says, He, Jesus, answered them, the religious people. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. By the way, calling them hypocrites wasn't a positive thing. He's offending them. He says, you're a hypocrite. As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. Our heart of our faith must not rest in theological knowledge or this external Christian habits that we do, but a heart that loves and worships Jesus and is ruled by Jesus. Not this external thing that the religious system had back in their day. And he goes after them. says, you your whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside, oh, it's a mess and it's far from me. Please know, there is such a thing as Christless Christianity. It's just called anity. Huh. Yeah, let it sit, and you'll get it. All right, let it sit. Worship team, make your way up, please. Here's my heart. We must call people to confession. We must call people to repentance, seeking forgiveness. We got to get back to knowing Jesus is the Son of God. And He came to deal with sin. Verse 7, it says, He, referring to John the Baptist, proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I am. He's proclaiming this in front of all the crowds that are coming to be baptized. He says, he's more powerful than I am. He's coming after me. He says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. John, in John 3.30, it would eventually say that John uh, John the Baptist realizes In John 3.30, it says, he must increase, referring to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. He knows something. John the Baptist knows his place. John the Baptist knows this is not my moment. He knows this is not my story. This is Christ's story. The one that's coming to deal with sin the spirit that will give life. And John the Baptist knows, I can't give that life. But he knows something. I'm not worthy to even stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals, the one that's coming. See, the only way we'll ever be in our proper place is if Jesus is first in his proper place. And John the Baptist knows he must increase, I must decrease. Less of me, more of him. And when we get to that spot, I think you and I can truly enter into a heart of worship of who this Jesus actually is. Because humility is the product of worship. Humility is understanding. It's not me, it's him. I don't care if this band didn't sing my favorite song because it's about him. I don't care if they don't have an organ because it's about him. I don't care. Oh, please, Lord, maybe we never do country. But I don't care if it becomes country. It's about him. I mean, I can still wish to God, but I'm going to worship. Well, there we go. Bluegrass or whatever. All right. We'll worship. Why will we worship? because Jesus is first in his proper place and then we can freely worship. And John Mark Mark ends by saying what John the Baptist says in these first eight verses, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right away, John Mark is asking the question, What are you doing with Jesus? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the good news? Do you believe he's the son of God? Because everything changes with Jesus. What are you doing with Jesus? Church family, will you please stand? Read the rest of Mark 1, there's so much richness there. Study it this week. What's beautiful is we'll all study together the same stuff. What will you do with Jesus? Build your life upon him or build your life upon the world and the systems of the world you choose? Thanks for listening to this message from Radiant Life Church. To get to know us better, check out theradiantlife.church. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.